some electronic device, you'll be looking at the text with us this morning. We will be in Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. So Amos is one of the minor prophets stuck right in there at the end of the Old Testament. Um, all the short books as you flip through and you're wondering if you're in the right order. Um, we, the minor prophets are, are called minor only because of their brevity. They're short um, as compared to the, the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We've been in Amos now for the last um, almost two months, kind of working our way through the book. Um, that's our, our MO here at Redeemers. We just kind of work our way through um, a book chapter by chapter. And Amos is a prophetic book. It was written in the 8th century B.C. Amos was serving roughly in the year 760 to 755 B.C. So we're talking about a book that we're almost 3,000 years removed from. And yet over the last several weeks, we have found that it is incredibly poignant. Um, it's, it's relevant. It's meaty. Um, and it's heavy. And there's just kind of been this, this weightiness that has, has rested on us corporately, I believe, over the last couple months as we have had to deal with how God views sin, um, how he feels about judgment, and the fact that he is active and moving and working. And so Amos was not a professional prophet. He is ministering to the northern kingdom because at this point in Israel's history, the two kingdoms have split. There's ten tribes in the north, which is where he's ministering. He is actually from the south, which is the, the other two of the original 12 tribes. Um, and so we're going to get a little bit more of Amos's biographical information this morning in chapter 7. But ultimately, what Amos has done is he has honed in on both the political, the social, the moral, and the religious sins of Israel. And saying, you have presumed upon God for too long. You've assumed because you're his people that he will just kind of let you off carte blanche. That he doesn't care really what you do as long as you go through the religious motions. And what they are finding through his consistent, um, seemingly repetitive, but just um, over and over again, this pounding message of he does care, he is coming, and you're in trouble. Um, and, it's, and it's been strong and it's been hard. If you remember verse 1 of the whole book of Amos, it starts a little bit um, uniquely. And it says this, um, that the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. And he has this just phrase in there, his message are the things that he saw. Well, this morning we're going to begin to see the things that he saw. So chapter 7 begins to lay out some of the visions that he had. These visions are not his call to ministry, um, but it's happening as he is um, going through his prophetic ministry. There's going to be five in the remaining three chapters of Amos, and three of those five are this morning in chapter 7. All right? So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord, God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. And this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. 
The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. And this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all of his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from this land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and prophesy there. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the temple of the kingdom. And then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword, and your land will be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel surely will go into exile away from its land. Right? Your typical Father's Day passage. Uh, Amos just keeps coming. Right? I mean, it's, it's from the Lord, but Amos is, it just kind of keeps coming. Like you're taking body blow after body blow, and the people are resistant to the message, and yet he keeps coming with this ferocity. Um, Amos is, is a difficult book in that it's prophetic, and that we're not typically ones to deal in the prophetic much, um, and, and that it's ancient, right? So we're dealing with prophecy, we're dealing with poetry, we're dealing with a culture that is, is far different than us. And so I want to walk through Amos 7 and see if we can give some insight here. If we look back at verse 1, when Amos just says, look, this is what the Lord God showed me, behold. Um, he's, as he says, he showed me, he's affirming like, hey, I have authority and it's, I didn't create this. It's not on my doing. God has done this. And not only that, like he's saying, we, we talked. There was some auditory involvement. Um, there was some back and forth. I saw it. It was visual and auditory. It was personal. God is affirming my authority. And what the Lord shows him is, is a scene, right, of God forming um, a swarm of locusts that are then sent out on the land, and it just devours everything. Now, we know locusts throughout Scripture are a consistent um, object of judgment. We see it in Exodus. We see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in Joel. We see it in Amos. We see it throughout many of the prophets that locusts are devastating, that they typically refer to totality, that they come in and they wipe everything out, that there are still places in the world that, that fear the, the locusts um, coming in and wiping out crops, even now. 
that he's giving him a preview of what's happening. And so in the agricultural world at this point, what would have happened is during the first cutting of the grain crops, the, the king taxed them. And so everything in the first cutting went to the kingdom to take care of like the royal livestock, um, you know, to have reserves, those type of things. So the first cutting was like taxed. The second cutting comes, and the second cutting is what is, you notice what this is what he says. Look, it was just beginning to sprout the latter growth. And behold, it was the later growth after the king's mowings. So he says, look, we've had our first harvest. The second harvest is coming. During the second harvest is also when your non-grain crops are beginning to sprout. So it means everything is now vulnerable. Everything is exposed. And he says, and that's when the Lord is going to send these locusts and it's going to wipe you out. It's going to take everything and it's going to be severe. It's going to be swift. It's going to be utter destruction. Because following the second cutting, they enter into the summer season. Where there is six months of, of, of drought, of dry weather. There are no further cuttings. There are no fur, further harvest. He's saying you will be left destitute and without. And we see as, as Amos gets this vision... He then shows that he is a true prophet because he takes on the role of mediator. And he immediately intercedes on behalf of the people. Look, he he says, oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. Now if you remember in chapter 6, we have seen the pride and the arrogance of Israel. Then in in verse 1 of chapter 6, they refer to themselves as the notable. In verse 13 of chapter 6, they are referring to their recent history, right? And he's talking about the things that they have done. Is they've, they're, they're talking about military victories and expanding of boundaries and wealth that's been brought in. They think highly of themselves, and they are arrogant. But, but Amos is agreeing with the Lord. He's saying, I, I actually, I see them rightly as well. And they're small, and they are frail, And they are vulnerable. And if you turn your hand against them, they will not be able to stand. So he says, Lord, please forgive. How can they stand? They are so small. And do you notice that Amos is not bargaining? He's not saying, look, if you do this, they'll get their, their act together. Right? They'll start to, they'll repent and they'll worship appropriately. He's not, he's just saying, based on who you are, God, based on your character, I'm asking you to intervene. Most likely, one of the things, the passages that Amos is clinging to here would be Moses, or sorry, Moses, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right, that he's going, look, this was after the first tablets had been broken down. When Moses has gone back for new. And that he's being reminded the Lord is gracious. And he is slow to anger. And because Amos knows this, he's asking the Lord based on your character. Because i got nothing to offer you. I can't look at them and say there's some bargaining chip here. Or that I can even assume that they're going to walk with you now. But I'm just saying, if you act against them, you will crush them. And so he says, forgive them. And what the, what the Hebrew is saying here is he's saying pardon them. Not just like, hey, I forgive Carmen for this one thing that she did this one week. But he's saying, would you pardon them? Would you wipe it all out? 
Notice the Lord does not pardon. In verse 3, the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. So he doesn't pardon, but they get a stay. You can almost imagine, right, um, someone on death row. It's an execution time. And at the last moment, right, you're, you're asking either the governor for clemency or for a pardon or at the minimum a stay, like let's save their life. And the pardon doesn't come, but they say, okay, we're going to hold off. And so the threat is not over, but you can breathe for a moment. So in verse 4, Amos gets a second vision. And this is what the Lord God showed me. And now it's a judgment of fire. So he has talked about locusts, and now he's talking about fire, drought, heat. In an agriculture-based society, the two greatest enemies, right? That You are talking about utter destruction. This is the stuff of nightmares for an agrarian society. And he says, it's going to be judgment by fire, and it will devour the great deep. And it was eating up the land. And again, he's seen a vision of this happening, of the land being wiped out. That phrase, um, that it devoured the great deep. There was kind of a, a viewpoint in this, this time, in most of the cultures around, that you had the, the creator God who was over things. And then there were, the, the great deep was an area between earth and like wherever water came from, right? Like whatever the source of water was. And it was, it was like a, a divine place as well. And he's saying, hey, your gods will not save you. Because this fire that I send will devour the land and it will devour the great deep. There's nothing that's going to escape. There's nothing that I can't reach and I'm going to wipe it all out. This is terror. And again... Amos intercedes on their behalf and he says, Oh Lord God, last time he says, Please forgive, please pardon. Notice what he says this time. Oh Lord God, please stop. Please cease. Like, it's like, I don't even think I can ask you to forgive him, but would you just not do this? Again, how can Jacob stand? This is a question that we have asked throughout our time in Amos. When we see the fierce, ferocious nature of God, who roars from on high, who is holy and mighty, when he turns his face and his hand against us, the question we should be asking church still is, who could stand before him? And that there should be enough humility and enough awareness to understand, not me, only Jesus. There's no one else who can stand before him. And so Amos intercedes and says, please just don't do this. How again can Jacob stand? He is so small. And again, the Lord relented concerning this and said, this also shall not be. And so now beginning in verse 7, we're going to get the third um, kind of vision. But this one is going to be different because this one's not a scene. This one, God's simply going to show Amos an object. And and now Amos is not the one um, directing the dialogue with God. God is questioning Amos. So it's a little different. This is what he showed me. Behold... The Lord, and so he gets a picture now. The Lord was standing beside a wall, built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And so he answers, a plumb line. And so what we're seeing here is that, the, that Amos is going from being an interceder on behalf um, of Israel to now he's a witness. He is observing what is going on. And so what, what, what's going on here is this. The Lord is saying, do you see this wall that I have given 
that was built with a plumb line. A plumb line is it's like a level, right? It, it shows that things are square, that things are straight. Um, it, re, it reveals whether the workmanship, workmanship was shoddy or not, whether it was correct or not. And so what he's saying is, I gave them a wall that was in plumb, that was square, that was right. And what he's referring to here is he says, I redeemed them. I rescued them out of Egypt, not because of they were great or they were mighty or they had something to offer me, but because I'm faithful and I'm good. I rescued them when they were slaves, when they were desperate, when they had no hope. And then he, he walks in the wilderness with them, taking care of their needs. And then he meets them at Mount Sinai and reveals himself. He's revealing his character all through Exodus. And he gives them the law. And listen, he didn't give them the law in, in Egypt and say, Hey, do y'all want to do this? Because if you'll do this for a while, I'll come back and rescue you. In the midst of their pain, their, their, their slavery, their hopelessness, God reaches in and he rescues and ministers to them, not because of who they were, but because of his mercy. And then after the fact, he says, Now listen, I want to walk with you. In order to walk with me, there's a standard here. And it's not the standard that you were saved by, but it's a standard of holiness for us to keep fellowship. And so your salvation was already secured just because I'm merciful and gracious. And now you walk in it to show that you've received it, that you're walking with me, that you want me. And so he gives them a sacrificial system, reminding them that this was costly. It costs blood in, in Egypt to be rescued. It's a reminder that they need the mercy and the blood and the sacrifice to still be right with God. The law was a reminder that there's this, an expectation and you're not going to walk in it normally without me. That you need me. And so then he gives them prophets. And so what he's saying is, I gave you everything you needed to have a, a square, plumb, in shape, strong, stout wall. And so the Lord is standing by one like this. But now he's holding a plumb line in his hands. And here's what, what's going on. The plumb line in Amos 7 is God's standard of obedience. Specifically in righteousness and justice. And the wall that he's fixing to place the plumb line on is Israel. And so he's saying, when I started it out, it was square and it was right. And now I'm standing by you, the people, who are the wall, with a plumb line in my hands. And I'm going to put it on the wall. And we're going to see, have you walked faithfully with me? Have you done what was expected of you? Now listen, if you've been with us at even one week in Amos, or if you just paid attention in chapter 7 as we read it, you know it's not going to go well. Right? That they have not done what was expected of them. That their political system has turned justice into bitterness. They've enslaved their own people, forgetting that they were once slaved. Right? They, they've overtaxed and built wealth on ba- the backs of their fellow brothers and sisters. That they have not been just. They have been horrific and violent. And they've turned religion into a series of, of just activities, assuming that if they give God a little bit, that He'll continue to take care of them. There's no devotion. There's no real dependence. And so He's told them, I hate your worship. Now listen, the scene here would be like a scene that probably has played out in many of your homes. That one member of the spouse um, pair cares about things being really square and right. 
and the other one of you thinks things are okay. Right? So Carmen has just taken upon herself, I'm going to, meaning her, she's going to hang anything that needs to be hung in our house. Because my typical response is it looks level. She's like, did you put a level on it? No. But it looks level. Right? And then she throws a level on it and it's not very level. And so she's way more meticulous about that and she cares about that. And so she's developed her system for doing it. Um, You can almost imagine the people of God saying, looks level to me. Check out our wall, God. We, we have been doing all the sacrifices, all the devotions. We've been doing all of it, right? And so if you've ever hired a craftsman, many craftsmen will boast about their skill. And sometimes things from a naked eye can look okay, but then a level or a plum comes in, and it is a revealing tool that shows, that tests where you write in your claims or not. And so God is saying, I'm going to place this on it and we're going to see. And so what he is saying is, Amos, I want you to watch me put the plum on it. I want you to see the wall that Israel is and I want you to see if it's level. Because they have violated God's standard. Remember verse 7 of chapter 5. You who turn justice to wormwood, which is bitter, you cast down righteousness to the earth. In verse 12 of chapter 6. He says, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, into bitterness. And in verse 24 of chapter 5, we were reminded of what God's expectation, what his standard is. But let justice roll down like waters and let righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Israel's intent, what they were called to was to walk with and know God and to reflect his image, his character, his nature, his justice, his righteousness to the world, that they would be drawn to it and give praise and glory where it belongs to God alone. And they haven't done any of that. They've assumed that they were God's pet project and he wouldn't touch them, and so they've just done their own thing. And so he's calling Amos to be a witness now to the standard they have violated. And he says at the end of verse 8, I will never again pass by them. Here's what he's saying. The time for mercy, the time for waiting is over. I will not pass over and hope that things change again. The time of judgment is here. When I put the plum on the wall, we know. In verse 9, he begins to give some some clarity, right? He begins to show, was the vision accurate? So he says, the high places of Isaac, meaning the places of worship, shall be made desolate. I'm going to wipe them out. And the sanctuaries of Israel be laid waste. He's talking about the religious system. He's like the religious system was one area where righteousness and justice should have come, where devotion of the Lord should have come, and it has been found wanting and lacking. It has not pleased me, and so I'm going to wipe out the religious system. And then he says the second, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. So he goes after the king and the king's family and the political system. And he says, you too haven't reflected me rightly. So the religious system or the political system, both have failed me. Both are out of square and both will be dealt with. They are of no, they're not fit for divine use. They're not benefiting humanity. 
And listen, it's been a rebellion for a long time because Jeroboam set up Israel, the north, over 200 years prior. This isn't the Lord being quick and saying, oh, you stepped out of line, right? 200 years of watching them flee and run from him. He has been patient and long-suffering, and now he's going to act. But he was not quick to anger. And so then we get a little bit of a preview of some of what Amos' life would have looked like in verse 10. And we see um, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Remember, Bethel was one of the shrine places in the north that Jeroboam set up so that people wouldn't travel back to Jerusalem. So it's this, this false place of worship. And so he, as kind of the chief priest, goes to Jeroboam the king and he says, Hey, Amos says he's coming for you and he's going to kill you. And he's going to take over. Amos isn't saying these things, right? Look at what he says. Amos has conspired against you in verse 10. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all of his words. And so he's saying, look, his message is, is, is gaining traction. It's uncontainable. It's unbearable. And he's coming for you, Jeroboam. Now listen, Amos has said, Jeroboam's house is going to fall. And Israel is going to go into exile. And the Lord is going to, is going to met out justice. He's not saying, I'm going to do it. He's simply passing on, the Lord is coming, and it's not for your good. And so Amaziah, right, he holds off. He doesn't share that he's got some vested interest in this, right? He doesn't share that he's coming for the religious system as well, right? He just kind of goes at it and says, hey, maybe, maybe the king will do something about Amos. He alters the message. He leaves part of it out. He leaves out the reasons why Amos is saying this. He doesn't say he's saying he's going to overthrow you because there's no righteousness and justice. He just says he wants to do it. Right? So he's altering the message. Because Amos had said, verse 11, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel must go into exile away from this land. So now we have some back and forth between Amaziah and Amos. And Amaziah says to him in verse 12, O seer, go away, flee to the land of Judah. What he's saying is go home. And eat bread there. The phrase eat bread there means make your living there. Right? Go back to where you came from. Make your living there. And prophesy there. Like, do what you want. Just do it away from us. But never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary. And it is the temple of the kingdom. Do you notice he doesn't say it's God's? He says it's it's the kingdom's. It's Jeroboam's. It has nothing to do with God. In verse 14, Amos answered and said, Look, I was no prophet, nor a prophet. So what he's saying is, I'm not a professional. I'm not making my living from prophetic work. I didn't come up here because I had a message and I was hoping to get paid. He's like, I had jobs. I was a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore figs, that he went and harvested um, figs. He's like, I had a job. I don't need this to eat. But I am being obedient to what God has called me to do. But the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. So what we're seeing is that Amos is being obedient. And some of you, right, this is the moment that you need in the sermon this morning. Amos is being obedient. And he's still taking shots. Okay. When the Lord calls us to something, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. He has called us to obedience and he has called us to faithfulness. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to get out of the way and applaud. 
Amos is being faithful, and the chief religious leader is now opposing him and trying to get the king to execute him, to come against him. He is taking shots from the highest in the land. And Amos is only able to be faithful because he's clearly heard from the Lord. That he's being faithful and and obedient. He's saying, look, I didn't come up here because I wanted to. I came up here because I was compelled to. I had to. That he had conviction and he had courage. Listen, in in chapter 2, verse 12, one of the critiques that Amos had already given was this. But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. The religious system had already said, Hey, we don't want to hear from God anymore. We got what we want. We have what we need. We don't want to hear from God. And so Amaziah was a part of a system that was trying to stifle the very word of God. It was opposed to him. Verse 16 of chapter 7. Listen. You say, don't prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. The priest has been hearing a word from the Lord and has rejected it. What Amos is saying is, look, the plumb line has been set against the wall and the core leaders are corrupt. If the chief priest, if the leader of the religious system won't hear from God and repent and respond then what hope is there for anyone else? He's saying the vision is accurate. Right? The plumb line is revealing the truth. That he is a puppet of the king, that he is looking to stifle the word of the Lord. He's ignoring God. The vision is accurate. And so Amos then has a really strong and really personal word for Amaziah. Look at verse 17. Therefore, says the Lord. Amos doesn't say, hey, this is what I want. He doesn't ask the Lord for it. He just says, hey, here's what the Lord says to you. Your wife will be a prostitute in the city. He's bringing shame upon him. What he's saying here is is not, hey, your wife is going to be raped, right? And if she cried for help, she would be rescued. He's saying she's going to willfully choose to do this to survive. It'll be her decision. She's going to choose to do this. Leviticus 21 tells us that a priest can't take a wife that has been defiled in this manner. So he is shaming him and he is defiling him. He's bringing contempt upon him. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. He's saying your legacy, your heritage, your lineage, the priestly line is ending with you. Because it's all going to be wiped out. Right? Cutting at the heart of his hope of power and of what he's passing on. Your land will be divided up with the measuring line. So he's saying you're going to lose that too. Not only are you going to lose your family, not only are you going to lose your legacy, your heritage, you're going to lose your land, you're going to lose your wife, you're going to be shame and contempt will be poured out upon you. And you yourself will die in an unclean land. He's saying you're going to be taken somewhere that's not here. And you're going to be embarrassed and mocked because you're having to eat unclean food in an unclean place with unclean people. Because you have ignored the word of the Lord. And then just as kind of the last little like jab here. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from the land. He's saying all this is going to happen to you, to you, Amaziah. And by the way, what the Lord has said will happen is going to happen still. So you can oppose me all you want. But it's not me who's doing this. God is doing this. This will happen to you individually. And what I've said will come to pass. Because God is at work 
it is still going to happen. And so Amos 7, like much of Amos, or all of Amos so far, does not end on a lot of hope. And so we've invited you, and you've kept coming, so thank you, to, to rest in this, to sit under this. Because listen, there's a tendency for us, right? Because one of the things we're seeing in Amos 7, in all of Amos, is God's character is being revealed. That God is compassionate, because you notice in verse 7 and 8, he's still calling them my people. My people. And he's relenting of some of the judgment. So we're seeing that God is merciful, and it's what Amos has reminded him of in Exodus 34. This is who you've told us you are. But God is just, and he is holy, and he is coming after sin. And both of those things are true. Both of them. And they feel like they're at odds. And and what we're seeing is that both of these things are true. And this morning, for most of us, we run towards one end of that spectrum or the other. That we either are people of justice, right? And it is easy for us to condemn and to look at the world and say, here's God's standard and here's where you fall short. And God is just and he is coming for you. And others of us run to the mercy side and we're like, eh, he's going to forgive us. There's grace. It was just a minor indiscretion, right? And we start to use words that, that, that neuter sin. We need both. We need to know that God is just and that he is righteous and that he is going to benefit. He's going to come after those who victimize others. That he's going to make things right because he is holy and he is good and because it's who his nature is. And he is also merciful and compassionate and kind and patient not wanting any to perish. That when they forsook the law, they lost fellowship. When they muddled the sacrificial system, they lost the reminder that they needed Him, that they were dependent upon Him. We have to see both. Because when we see sin and weightiness and rebellion, and that this is what we deserve, like, do not forget, this is what we deserve. And then when we see Jesus step in and live the life we were meant to live that would avoid this, and then because we've lived this, steps in and takes the wrath of God, the justice of God on our behalf, and then he beats sin and Satan and death and stands again and says, go back with me to the Father. I'll call you brother and sister. He'll call you son and daughter. You're a part of the family and he loves you. That begins to look huge. And the cross and the life of Christ and his resurrection are massive because we've seen the significance and the weight of our sin and our rebellion. And so we love that we are rescued. We love that we have been sustained. We love that he's made us family. And if we lose justice and holiness, then him doing that is no big deal. And he's not really worthy of a lot of worship But when we see Amos should be us saying, where could we stand? We cannot stand. God's coming for us. He's roared from on high. And then Jesus jumps in and says, that's not your story any longer. It's rescue. It's hope. It's glory. It's goodness. At the cross, we see mercy and justice. Because God is rescuing us as he pours out wrath upon Jesus. 
That both of the things that we see in Amos are lived out at the cross. Just like when we see the flood, right? That God's character is consistent through the Old Testament into the New Testament. That God has poured out his wrath on the one who did not deserve it to save those who didn't. And he's giving it to them to make them his. But here's the kicker. He still then cares about holiness. We're not then free to say, well, thanks, Jesus. I'm going to go do my thing now. That we are called into fellowship with him. To be like him. To be holy and to follow him. And he gives us his spirit to transform us. He gives us his word to guide us. To feed us. To satisfy us. And much like the people of Israel... We look to be sustained and satisfied by far lesser things. And there will be a day, church, for us, where the plumb line will be applied to our life. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. And he talks about the church, right, walking through like this fiery doorway. And through that, it will be revealed our thoughts, our motives, our intentions, our desires, the reason that we did things, the very life that we lived. He says, look, you may know Jesus and walk through that and have everything burned up. And you'll be standing there as one still saved, but with nothing to show for a life. Because the plumb line is going to say, you knew Jesus and you missed it. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't build your life around him. You didn't trust him. You did it for your sake, for your name, for your glory, or you ignored it and tried to find satisfaction in other things. But others will walk through that fiery moment of revelation. And you're going to be standing there with jewels and crowns and treasure because you, he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your wall is square. Not because you are better, but because Jesus was it for you. And then you followed him and you trusted him. And his spirit guided you and it shaped you and the word fed you and satisfied you and you built your life on what I said about myself. And then we have a life with, with wealth, with treasure to show for it that we can then lay down at Jesus' feet because he rescued us from the wrath of God that we deserved. Right? But for most of us, we don't think like that. We think, Jesus saved me, do what I want because I get to go to heaven anyway. And this plumb line of Amos 7 feels far from us. But it's coming for us. And you may have your salvation intact. But don't we want to have something to offer back to Jesus for our rescue? For our redemption? For the mercy and the grace and the hope and the rescue and the fact that he has called you family. That he loves you and not only that, he likes you and has welcomed you in. And has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So the question, who can stand? Answer Jesus. And because he did, we can follow him back to the Father. We can know him trust him be transformed to be like him last thing it will be done the people of israel kept saying ah this this day isn't coming amaziah is like i know what the god said you go back and do it in your hometown i don't want to hear it anymore the day of the lord it, it came for them judgment came it took 200 plus years but it came And I think for some of us, we kind of think, 
Yeah, 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 judgment, it's not coming. If it does, I'll be fine. But in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, Church, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that, that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And so either death will come for you, and you'll stand before your king, or you will be living when the Lord splits the sky. Right? And some will bow a knee and say, there's my king. And others will say, judgment is here. Right? That's it. And so we can't look at Amos and say, that was for a bygone era. Church, the Lord has shown He is merciful and He is gracious and He is just. And He has shown it at the cross through Jesus. So would we respond to that this morning? The band is going to come back up and we get to sing this morning. If you're a, like, You get to sing to your King who has made you His. Maybe He's revealing some areas this morning where you, right are looking to be satisfied in lesser things. And so you just need to repent and say, God, I want my life to be squared with you. Not that that's what saves me, but I want to honor you. I want to have fellowship with you. And that that throws me out of whack. And that I'm not a good judge of my own life. I need you to reveal it if I'm in square or not. There'll be some folks, some men and women in the back of the room, if you need to talk to someone, to pray with someone, for any reason, they're back there for that. Um... If you would just allow in the next few moments the Spirit to minister to you. And when the band begins to sing, you're welcome to stand. If you need to continue to sit, that's fine. This is a moment for you to respond. And maybe for some of you, for the first time, what you're hearing this morning is the Lord saying, I want you. Trust me. Follow me. I've done this on your behalf. I have stood in place of the wrath for you. And He's calling you by name. Would you respond to that this morning? Say, yes, I'll trust you. I'll treasure you. I'll follow you. And tell somebody. Tell somebody. Let's pray.